Welcome. I was deciding whether or not I should run out and jump while running, but probably best not to. Uh, welcome to the um, uh, security session, five security automation improvements you can make by using <laughs> Amazon CloudWatch events and AWS config rules, um, or the longest slide session we could ever fit on a single page. Uh, my name is Henrik Johansson. Uh, I'm a security specialist solution architect in uh, the Americas, which you probably guessed by my name and my California accent. <coughs> uh, <laughs> so today we're going to cover a couple of items. Um, just a heads up, this is a level 400 uh, session. We're going to have a lot of um, code and demos and more code. Um, if you don't like that, um, so when I say Jason, I'm not talking to you whoever's in here called Jason. Um, so if you don't like code, I won't be offended if you want to leave. If you do like code or just want to learn what you can do with secure automation on AWS, feel free to say, I'd love to have you here. Um, so we're going to cover a couple of different topics this, um, this session. So we're going to start with a bonus session, um, the reverse order. Uh, quick talk about why you want to do secure automation. Um, quick mention on the tooling, because we're going to focus on the actual uh, scripts and uh, go through a little bit of the anatomy of uh, secure automation, how you should build your rules. Um, and then we're going to go through the demo and code for five different automation pieces, like we promised. Um, and we're going to cover a couple of other resources after. Um, the five automation pieces we're going to go through is actually um, five different script scenarios that cover different security scenarios that are not too uncommon of happening in your uh, or in other people's environments. Um, those are going to be automatic cloud shell uh, remediation. So what happens when something, uh, someone does something on your AWS services like turn off cloud shell. Uh, cloud formation template audit. Uh, we're going to go through AWS CIS foundation framework uh, account assessment. So it's basically a benchmarking tool. Um, auto MFA for IAM. And lastly, the tainted server, uh, auto isolation. Um, I did promise a bonus. And the bonus is that the code for all these sessions uh, is going to be released on open source. So it will be available on GitHub uh, as open source that you can use and do whatever you want with. Uh, there are two GitHub repos, one for AWS security automation that's going to contain most of them, and then one for AWS security benchmark that's going to contain the CIS uh, foundation benchmark test. Um, if anyone were at a session earlier this week for uh, the CIS Foundation Frameworks and general benchmarking, um, this is actually the tool that created the report that was uh, demoed in that session. So what do you want to do security automation? Well, we want to reduce the risk of human error. Uh, whether or not it's malicious or by accident, we still want to reduce them. Humans do make errors, uh, whether they want to or not. Automation is also effective. Um, you can run one script or you can run a million scripts. Um, we don't really care about that. We can scale as we need to. It's also reliable. Most humans don't like getting up at 2.30 a.m. to turn off a server. Scripts love that. Uh, and it's also scalable. Um, we can scale it out as we need to according to our own environment size. So even if you only have five servers, you can still implement the same script that you can do with 5,000 servers. That should not matter. And don't worry, we still need humans. Someone's got to innovate. Someone's got to be the space cadets. Someone's got to come up with this stuff. And we want to not use red shirts because we want to have you around. Um, 
The second reason is also high pace of innovation is awesome. Uh, we talk about high pace of innovation a lot. But we also need high pace of detection, alerting, remediation, countermeasures, forensics, things that usually take time and it's crucial to get started within seconds after they happen. Um, as an example, if someone does breach your account, getting that 2.30 call in the morning is not that good because you're still going to have that person wake up, he's going to go to his computer, turn it on, and versus a script that was already there and took care of it and disabled all the accounts within half a minute. Some of the tooling, uh, like I said, we're not going to go through too much. Uh, if you haven't used Lambda, absolutely do that. As a security practitioner, especially in the security automation role, um, Lambda is going to be your best friend. Um, also look at config rules and CloudWatch events. Um, go down to the expo hall and talk to the different product teams around them. Uh, Cloud trail inspector, same thing there. Uh, for tracking and logging, awesome tools, CloudWatch logs, DynamoDB, uh, make sure you use them. Um, for alerting, SNS is one thing. You can also use a combination of SNS with, for example, CloudWatch events. Um, just have some way of alerting and making people aware of what's going on. And a bunch of third-party open source tools. I'm going to uh, list a couple of them, uh, more of the sort of bigger frameworks out there. Um, and we'll do that in the end. So I'm not going to go through too much of this. Uh, just a hint, when you build your security automation tools, make sure that you have a framework to follow. Don't just go out and start writing away. That's, that's good for, like, figuring stuff out, but once you put something in production, make sure that you have a framework to follow. So when the next person writes it, or even better, when the next person needs to troubleshoot it, he knows the structure of it. He doesn't have to go in and figure out what's going on when, did he actually do logging, or did he forget about it. Have a framework, so have your priority actions. What do you need to do first? What is the most important thing for this script to do? Forensics, figure out what happened. Uh, countermeasures, do we need to prevent it again? Um, there's two cases for countermeasures. One, someone did something wrong, and they're going to do something wrong over and over again until someone stops them, or someone did something malicious. Both cases we want to prevent from happening over and over again. Um, alerting. Make sure you make people aware. You can have automation that protects you for a year, but if no one knows about it, you might have fixed it in a day instead. Um, and then logging. And logging has a, actually a dual purpose. Uh, and we're going to show that in the first demo why you absolutely need to do proper logging in your security automation as well. <clears throat> so the first thing we're going to look at is uh, automatic CloudTrail remediation. Um, and this is just as a sample. You can do any kind of service, action, whatever it is that you need to do. This is just an example. Um, so what we're going to do is that we're going to verify that CloudTrail is always running because there shouldn't be a reason to turn off CloudTrail. If someone is doing that, they're doing it because they're doing something wrong or they're trying to prevent something. Um, and we also want to issue some countermeasures because if someone is doing this for whatever reason, we want to prevent them from doing it again. So in this case, we can use uh, Lambda, CloudTrail, CloudWatch Events, um, and just a Python script running on Lambda. So let's kick off with a demo. And if you can switch... And just a heads up, we are doing five live demos, or four. Um, so if they don't work, or other. <laughs> so this is not going to be too complicated. Uh, what we're going to do is we're simply going to stop CloudTrail. Um, so CloudTrail stopped. 
and we're just checking. Um, we can see the cloud trail is not logging. Um, so our stop event was perfect. Um, this is a scenario where someone went in and stopped it either by mistake or malicious because they want to do something on the back end and they don't want anyone to find out what is happening. Um, so in this script, I simply issued a stop logging event. And uh, then in this case, I'm just looking for uh, CloudTrail to start logging. And this is where I'm hoping that I got the right account there. Um, the important thing here when we run these is, again, uh, report back what is going on. Because if we don't have that backtrack, uh, we can't issue the correct countermeasures. So in this case, we're actually using um, the countermeasure, uh, sorry, the logging event of what happened to determine whether or not we should uh, implement countermeasures uh, on the account. So in this case, we saw that um, after a while here, and again, we're running on <laughs> limited bandwidth, um, the, uh, um, the countermeasures went in. They started CloudTrail again. Um, this is just holding for CloudTrail status. Um, and this is the same user I'm running from. So the same user has access to both uh, stop the CloudTrail and also uh, run it again. The really important thing here why we want to uh, log is because we want to be able to track and see if they've done it again before. So we track and log for uh, forensic perspective, but also to see in our countermeasure process, we can go in the same log and pull out information to see has this user done it before, all using CloudWatch events and Lambda. So when I run it over and over again, um, this script will actually look in the, uh, the database and see has he run it before or um, is this the first time. So while that is running, if we want to switch over to the other one, and I'll show you the effect uh, once we go to the, the codes piece there. Um, so again, a lot of code, a lot of JSON. Um, don't be afraid. Uh, so the first thing, we're going to go through a couple of different scenarios and a couple of different important pieces of these automation scripts. So for example, first thing we want to know is who did this? So we need to extract the information from the event coming in from CloudWatch events. And in this case, we don't want to know all the information. But we want enough so we can do forensics after. The key here is that um, in the beginning there, you can see that we have two different usernames. And this is really important that you test these scripts first because if these usernames are, if this is a IAM user, that's going to look different than if it is a um, uh, federated user. So we need to go in and, and look at the actual event there. Um, as I said, execution order. So in this case, we have a number of different cases. Uh, so we have our priority action. What is the most important thing we want to do? Well, we want to start CloudTrail. We have our alerting. Um, which is we want to send the information to someone to make them aware of it. Then we have the forensics. What has actually happened here? So we're looking up the Dynamo table where we store our, our um, track records in. Um, and then just look, have, have this happened before? Was it the same user? If we want to, we can add uh, range searching. So we can, for example, look for timestamp and say, it's OK to make mistakes once a day, but if you make them twice a day, we're going to prevent you. Um, and the forensics is also what leads whether or not you should do countermeasures. Um, and once you've done the countermeasures, um, go on to logging. Because, as I said, we are going to use that information later on as well. Um, as I mentioned, forensics. It's not hard to do 
a simple version of forensics. Forensic can be anything from memory dump analysis to looking at up in other da uh, databases or extracting information from the file system, but it could also be as simple thing as, has this happened before? So in this case, we're just looking up in the, uh, in the um, Dynamo table. Can we find this username in the Dynamo table? Yes, okay, prevent it from happening again. And in this case, we can say that if it's uh, a first time, don't issue the, the countermeasures, but if it's done before, issue the countermeasures. And the countermeasures in this case, it's simple. We just want to deploy a new IAM policy because we don't want to delete the user. We don't want to cause sort of irreversible harm. Uh, we're just going to uh, disable the user and we're going to just apply a um, deny policy on him. So this is a simple IAM deny policy that we automatically apply as an inline policy on that user. Um, this could extend longer. We could apply, for example, for temporary tokens. We could apply for um, disabling and removing groups they have access to, creating a report but just make sure that you prevent this from happening again. And if we switch back, uh, we can now see that anytime I try to do this again, I get an access denied, simply because um, the uh, CloudWatch event on the backend server went in and applied this uh, disabled user policy, and since it's IEM, deny will always win. And this is just a very simple script that you can just take, implement, and change from, for example, CloudTrail swapping to anything that you want to. This could be a security group that gets changed. It could be an EC2 instance that's being spun up. It could be a KMS permission being changed. Anything that you want to do that is API-based, you can just issue a simple script to revert that and alert it on it. Oops. Um, so if we switch back, we're going to switch a lot today. Um, there we go. Uh, and as I mentioned, the, uh, the script is going to be available. This script is already out there and available to download today. Um, so you can just go out on the Git repo and get it and modify it to whatever you want to check for. This is an inspirational script. Um, if you want to do CloudTrail, you can just take that one. But go in and change it to whatever you want to. The second piece is uh, a CloudFormation template audit. And this is just to show um, how you can implement easy methods of uh, infrastructure governance before you deploy uh, anything out in your production environment. So in this case, we have users that uh, are deploying infrastructure that do not conform to your corporate policies. That could be, for example, they put out a CloudFormation template that have a security group that opens up access to your backend resources um, straight from the internet. Or it could be that they have a, um, um, they start opening up unused protocols, they don't wanna, we don't want to have port 80 and things like that. So we want to catch everything that doesn't conform to our standard. We also want to risk, uh, the, uh, reduce the risk of un uh, unapproved changes. So if you have something in production already and someone makes a change to it, you can also see that is this user authorized to do this change? Even though he has permission, he might not be in that environment normally. Um, and the services we use in this case, and this one we're not going to demo uh, because it requires a bit more, but um, uh, we use Code Pipeline and CloudWatch Events and Lambda uh, and Code Commit as well, or any type of Git repo. Uh, and that's also an important thing. Always check your CloudFormation templates into Git. Use a, code ver uh, a version control system for your infrastructure as well. That's the easiest way that you can do governance on infrastructure and do it in pre-deploy mode. So in this case, a lot of info on one page, 
Um, since we're using code pipeline, the way we handle this is that a user will simply check in, uh, or an admin will check in their code to a Git repo. Nothing strange. What we're going to do is that we have a code pipeline, and this could be any type of automation tool as well, um, that just monitors that Git repo. Anytime someone checks in a, code, uh, a file there, it's going to extract the file, send it to a Lambda function, and have that Lambda function do audit, and then decide what the next step is. So in this case, we're just gathering a lot of information, like the input artifacts, meaning that what file it is, um, where it's stored, where they can put it, uh, fetch it, information so we can report back status after. And again, this is just so we can get more comfortable with uh, doing different kind of validation, governance, and automation flows. Um, then once we have the template, so we do the get template first with the information we got, uh, we're going to get some rules because we're doing audit. So we want to make sure that we audit the stuff with real rules. Um, we're going to go through that rules and do a full evaluation of the template. I'm going to show you how. Um, and then simply decide what's the next step for this uh, file. So if you're doing a deployment pipeline, it's very easy to set up multiple scenarios based on the risk assessment. So for example, if it's a low risk, you can just have that, uh, that CloudFormation template go straight out into a production environment or a test environment. Uh, and say that we've deemed it low risk enough that nothing's going to change and, and affect our uh, overall security posture. So just have co uh, code pipeline directly push it out into a uh, production environment. Or we can say that we think it's low risk, but there are a couple of items where we're a little bit unsure. Um, so what we do is that we can send it to a second code pipeline or any type of pipeline orchestration um, and say that we, want to, we probably want to push it out, but we want to validate it. So we can introduce a manual gate. So push the information, what is unsure, and send it to a, a manual gate process where someone has to go in and approve it. And once they approve it, it follows the same path, goes out into the next uh, infrastructure step. Or they can also decline it and send it back to the, um, the developers. Or in the third scenario, if we deem this as a big, uh, major high risk, cancel it instantly. Just don't let it go anywhere, stop it, cancel the flow, delete the file, or send an email back saying that this is not approved, here's why. The important thing is that include the here's why, because if you say that it's not approved, it's just going to repeat. Um, so in this case with the rules, um, what we want to do, and especially if you're dealing with, code, uh, with uh, CloudFormation templates, so the way CloudFormation template is built up, it's built up by a number of different resources. These resources could be EC2 instances, could be security groups, Dynamo tables, any type of resource in the AWS. And we want to break this out and separate them. So in this case, we take the whole CloudFormation template, we read it in, and then we extract the separate groups. So we extract all security groups in one place, the EC2 instances in one place. Um, if we want to add support for more features, we can just add more and more categories. And these would match with the uh, CloudFormation templates. But it might be something that we're not interested in, like we don't care what to do with, um, with the Dynamo table, or we don't care what to do with this, just an example. Um, and then you don't need to have that as a category. But make sure you break it out into separate groups, because the more um, isolated you can get it, the easier it is to write your rules uh, and evaluate that information. So the rules in this case is a simple regex. Um, the reason for that is that it's fast, it's easy to conform, and it can catch a lot of the different things in a pre-deployment scenario that otherwise would go out. Um, so we have a couple of items here. We have a rule name, and we store these in DynamoDB. 
we have a rule name, we have a category. As I mentioned, we have security groups, EC2 instances. So in this case, we want to apply this only to the security groups. We don't want to run this on everything else because that's just going to take compute time. Uh, we can choose whether or not we want to activate it or dis uh, deactivate it. So, for example, if we realize that we get a lot of false positives, okay, deactivate it and, and figure out later what we want to do with it. The key item here is risk value. How do you classify this risk? And we want to make sure that something that is really sensitive, like a security group, is treated accordingly and mapped according to your internal risk process. So if you have a risk analysis or a threat assessment on your environment, map that to the rules that you create. So for example, we deem a, a this is again just an example. If you open up port 80, we say, okay, that might be a risk of three. But if you were to say that we have SSH open to the world, so in this case, we're looking for any type where we have open port 22 to anywhere. And if you don't like regex, they, they get complicated. <laughs> um, but make sure that you capture the information that could cause a threat to you. Um, and then apply the proper risk value. Um, in this case, we're using regex. It's really easy to replace this or have multiple versions. So you can have regex. You can also have a code snippet and just apply that code snippet to the rule if you want to do more advanced things than a regex, if there is such a thing. Um, but, uh, or complicated maybe the word is. But uh, make sure that you handle the risk value. And the risk value is that once we run through, uh, and again, this will make uh, a little easier when you download, if, if you download after. But once we have our, our different resources and our different rules, we're just gonna go through all the resources uh, category by category and apply the risk, uh, the rules on that category. And once we've applied all of them, so here's we're extracting the, the resources, um, we're gonna get a risk value. And we can have multiple risk values on the same resource. So for example, a security group could have two risk values. It could get one because it had open up everything to the world or just open to the world. It could have a second risk value because it was port 80 and a third risk value because it also had for 22 in it. Um, we want to add up all of these risk values. You can also weigh them depending on if it's, uh, for example, security groups might have higher weight than EC2 resources. But we want to um, add all of them together and then make assessment. If, for example, in this case, if we have a total risk value of five, okay, we're gonna go forward with it because we know that the high risk items would pass that limit by just themselves. Or if we have, for example, between a certain limit, and you can implement as many different limits as you want here. You can also categorize them and say that I approve five on EC2, but three on, on security groups. Um, and then let's go through a loop and say, okay, if it's low risk, tell Code Pipeline to push it out into production. If it's medium risk, okay, we're gonna need a manual approval. If it's high risk, just fail it. Don't do anything, just fail it. And if we can switch over. So when you build these, uh, these scripts, um, try to categorize them as much as possible for what they're doing. So for example, don't build everything into one big function. Um, follow the same principles as we do, you would when you develop an application. Separate them out. Do a get artifact. Do a get template. Um, have a separate function to put the job result back into the, uh, the pipeline queue. Um, <clears throat> it's much, much easier when you go in and troubleshoot them. Um, 
and then have a way to deploy the different rules. I mean, normally you would have this in a Dynamo table. In the, the code that uh, is going to get available to you, uh, it's going to deploy it inside the Python um, uh, in the, the script. This is something that you want to tie into your risk assessment. Uh, so if you have your risk assessment values available, try to merge them or at least have a way to fetch that information and put it in your, um, your script as well. So if we jump back again. So here's the, probably the biggest one. <laughs> um, so this is the, uh, how many people have seen the uh, CIS Foundation framework that we released a while ago? Couple. Um, so if you go ahead and search for the AWS CIS Foundation framework, it's a white paper that describes uh, a number of different security uh, controls. I think it's about 40 something. Uh, they will evaluate uh, also more, they will set a standard for what your AWS account should conform to. So it includes things like you should, the obvious one, don't have root access. Um, you must have MFA token on the root. Uh, it should be a hardware token. Um, all the way down to, do you have proper alerting in place? Uh, will you see if you get a authentication error? Is there a, a rule that, um, or is there a configuration that will actually send an email or an alert when something happens. Um, so all of these rules uh, are together in that framework, and it also contains information on how to remediate in case you fail that framework. Uh, it also contains uh, the AWS commands that you can run to figure out whether or not um, your environment conforms to that. So what we did is, to simplify that, uh, created a single Python script that you can run either standalone or you can run it as part of config rules that will evaluate your entire account against all those 40 plus control frameworks. And it will give you a report uh, in various formats, and we're gonna show the various formats. Um, and it's also gonna uh, allow you to capture the information and put it in, for example, a SIM by using the simple API commands of config. Um, <clears throat> in this case, we simply use Lambda, config rules, and a lot of different API commands. Um, this script is 2,200 lines long, um, so it's fairly heavy one. It will take time to run, uh, just because it does a lot of inventory. The reason why we have it as a single file is simply because uh, putting it as single individual files, you can always extract out individual controls. Uh, you can also enable and disable the controls you're not interested in. So if you don't want to run a control, simply disable it. Um, but the reason why we have it as one file is that if you're gonna report on individual controls, that means that you would need 45, 50, 60 uh, individual config rules running in your account that constantly run and check your environment. Instead of running one control once a day or once a week or how often you wanna run it, that gives you a total estimate of all your resources. Um, so if we switch over. So the, um, The script has a number of different outputs that you can use, uh, all depending on how you want to do it. So we have, for example, a, um, a JSON output that is simply going to report it back to the console. So this is more if you're running it uh, locally on your computer because you want to just check out your environment and see how it is. It's going to give you a JSON structure that you can import into whatever tool you use so you can convert it between formats as well. Uh, and it's simply gonna be structured according to the, the main category, uh, and these are logging, monitoring, um, and a couple of others. Um, a subcategory 
uh, which is the actual control ID. And here you can see as an example, the first control is avoid the use of root account. So we're just going to look if you have access to the root account. Um, we have, for example, if MFA is enabled on it and hardware MFA. And the script will simply um, uh, have as an output all the different controls. And as I said, there's a couple of them. Um, it will also show you all the items that fail. So, for example, we can see that on control 1.16, uh, it says, ensure that there's an IAM policy attached only to group or roles, not as inline policies. We can see that the offenders in this case happen to be me. Um, and uh, it's going to report back to ARN, uh, so the Amazon resource name, for the individual control that failed. So again, if you import this into some other tool, it's full JSON structure, so you can just ask, which are the offenders on control 1.6? And it's going to give you all the users and all the groups of resources that failed that control. And if you go to the end of it, so said it's a long one, uh, there's also a separate, uh, separate reporting feature, uh, which is assigned URL. So as part of the report, it's just going to uh, create a signed URL, create an HTML file, upload that file, and you can go into a, if you can make that a little larger, a, uh, you get an HTML report that you can send to your managers or your um, security team or whoever needs it. It's going to contain information on when it was run, with version, a link to the benchmark test so you can download the benchmark with the remediation features. Uh, it has a short summary of the failed controls. So these are all the controls, and this is a demo count. That's why a lot of fails. Um, all the controls that failed, and then a list with all the different controls, uh, whether or not they failed or success, uh, color-coded for easy viewing. Um, quick heads up that there are some controls that don't support automation in there. These are going to be yellow marked, um, and that's because you have to go in and manually verify those controls. Um, but it's still going to give you a full list of all the controls in the test. Um, and it has a last one. It's also using, if you're running this in config rule, uh, it's also going to give you something called annotation. Um, so annotation is a way to add information to config rule and config, whether or not something is compliant or non-compliant. So if we find that your account is non-compliant, it's also going to contain the short form. Um, it has a size limit of 256 character. So if, like this demo account, if you have a lot of failed controls, um, it will not parse, uh, put all of them in there. Hopefully, you're never going to see the etc. in the end. Um, but it will report back all the compliance reports. Um, the, and the benefit of this is that this is available through APIs. So this is just the AWS APIs that you call in. So if you call to get the, uh, the control element, um, you can show it there. So it's basically for the config service, get compliance detail by config rule. Uh, and this is a separate shout out. If you're using config rules, always use annotation. Annotation is a perfect way to inform people what is going wrong in your account. I'm just switching there. So if we can switch over. So looking at a little bit on the actual script, uh, this is available today. Uh, we soft launched it um, on Tuesday for the other session. Um, so you can go in and download this today and run it on your account. Um, and there's a couple of options in there. Uh, one is just as an informational, uh, which benchmark version. We, uh, the benchmark current one is 1.1. You have a couple of different options on the controls that need to have 
setting. So for example, when was the last time you used a root account? You can set that. We, of course, want to say zero. You should never use it. Um, so if you've used it, it will alert on it. Um, you can also choose whether or not you want that web control or not. Uh, not everyone wants to have that HTML file. If you're just going to run it on your account single time, you can turn that off. Um, but then also if you do have it, uh, you can choose where to put it, which S3 bucket, and how long you want that report to be available using the pre-signed URL. And this is ours. So by default, we set it up so it's available for seven days. After that, you cannot use that URL anymore. Um, we also have a feature so we can obfuscate the result. And this is more if you want to share it with multiple people and you don't want to show which account information, account number it is. Account number is not a secret, but for internal competition. <laughs> um, you can choose whether or not you want to show that. Otherwise, it's just going to replace it with account number one. Um, and then finally, whether or not you want that script to be uh, published out to uh, the, uh, the console. Um, so if you run it on your local, uh, local computer, it's going to push it out to the console there. If you run it in um, Cloudwatch, uh, sorry, in um, config rule, you can actually get the full report from the Cloudwatch logs uh, database as well. So just go into Cloudwatch logs and it's going to be available there as well as an output. <coughs> Couple of options in here. Every items, uh, all the controls are completely isolated. That means that you can individually make changes in a control and not affect any other control checks. Uh, there are a couple of um, centralized resources. So when you build things like this, and this is why we built this, showed it, you can build a full framework and compliance framework. In this case, we use the CIS controls. You can map this to any framework that you have and that you have to follow and get a full inventory of your account. A um, couple of items, though, is that there are some resources that you don't want to hammer too much and do in the individual controls. So we lift out, for example, credentials report, because it's a full report that you run on the account and you have to wait for it to be delivered. It takes a couple of seconds. Um, but we don't want to do that for every control that uses it. Same thing with password policy uh, and same thing with cloud shells. It's things that's going to be reused because they will not change during the time of the script. Uh, we just export those, uh, sorry, we uh, get those in a central location and then use those to pass parameters to the different controls. But besides that, all controls are isolated in its own function. Um, so you can easily turn on and off them, change them. If CIS updates the control framework, it has a, um, um, a change list. So you can go in and say, okay, control number 1.1 changed. Okay, we can go in and change 1.1. All the controls are structured exactly the same. We have an intersection with all the information we need, so result, fail reason, offenders, control number, things like that. We have a midsection, which is the actual control. This is exactly what we're doing. So in this case, we're just going to see if the cloud trails have log file validation enabled on them. And we have a last section, which is the return function. And here's all the information that we gather. So the only thing that you need to change is the middle section. All the other pieces are the same for all the different controls. And this is just to simplify updates, uh, simplify reusability, and make it easy to understand how they're built. Um, we also have, as I mentioned, the evaluation, uh, the um, uh, conflict rule integration. So once it's run through this, it's simply going to see, do we have any kind of annotations and any kind of failures on it? If so, we're going to report it back as a non-compliant. If not, we're going to say that it's compliant. And if you go into config, you're going to see a green mark where it says, your CAS benchmark control is green, you're good to go. Or it's going to say, your CAS compliance is red, here's why. And as I mentioned, use annotation. Annotation is absolutely fantastic. Um, 
There's a couple of caveats with annotation, uh, or actually it's one annotation uh, caveat. It supports 256 characters. So if we have a lot of failures, we have to make sure that we don't exceed that number or the control, the uh, evaluation will not be accepted by config. So we just want to make sure we introduce fail-safes there. And this is the same when you build something on your own as well. Introduce the fail-safes, test it out. Um, we have the HTML report. Um, you might wonder why we're not using one of those super fancy libraries. Um, there's a ton of different uh, good libraries to build uh, HTML reports. The downside of using external libraries is that you might have to create a um, zip file with all the code instead, uh, instead of just using a single Python file. So in this case, to avoid having multiple files, uh, which means that when you upload it to Lambda, you cannot see the code straight into the, the console. And also, if you want to send it to someone, you can just give them the, zip, uh, the Python file. Uh, we just built uh, our own um, HTML generator that is not super fancy. But if you need to change something and you want to introduce like your own logos or whatever, you can just go in here and add your own graphics, your own information. If you want something else to, to show up there, you can just add whatever you want to straight in the, the, the main Python file. There's no external libraries that you're dependent on when it comes to the, the HTML file. And like I said, uh, S3 library. If you want to do the, the report, uh, make sure you provide a bucket where you can deliver. But you absolutely want to use pre-signed URLs so you can get a secure method of sharing that information and make sure you set an expiration date on it. So if we switch over. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, we have a number of different uh, controls in the beginning. Uh, that just sets options for the, the actual script. Um, and then it is a large amount of different controls. So when you write your control uh, framework like this, keep in mind that some of them will be super easy. Some of them is literally two lines of code, while some of them will require you to do a lot of more code. So this is all part of the same one where we have to calculate time deltas between now and from when we thought it, something happened or time delta between when something was used the first time to now. Um, sometimes they get a little complicated, uh, and in other cases, um, like I said, it's just a single, um, a single check that says, do you require uppercase in passwords? No? Okay, good. That's the only thing that you need to check. But uh, the benefit of isolating them, like I said, is very easy to replace, um, and it is a lot of, <laughs> a lot of text. Um, so if you go to... Eventually, we'll get there. To the end, um, as I mentioned, you can go in and individually enable and disable the different controls that you want to run. If there is something that you don't want to run because it doesn't apply to you, or it's not of interest to you, just go in and disable it. Um, there's no point in having a failed report for something that doesn't apply to you. And you can do that for each individual controls. Um, and one key item here as well is that um, if you want to run it in config rules, you don't need to do any changes to it. It will automatically detect if it's called from config rules and just adapt to it and report back the information needed for config rules. So there's no need to do anything. Just download it, run it on your computer, test it, run it externally. Um, there's also a JSON policy document with all the permissions that are required by the CRS control uh, and by the Lambda function. 
so you don't give it overly, uh, too many permissions. You only need to give the permissions that are listed there. Uh, and they are all described calls um, except for the put evaluation and, and uploading the SV bucket. And also, of course, creating CloudWatch logs because it's a Lambda function. So go out and check it out today. Highly recommend. Uh, if we switch to the other one. So the next one I want to check, uh, look at is auto MFA for IAM users. So this is something I created a while ago uh, because we had a couple of customers that thought that when they create IAM users, they don't want to have to call the, the user to ask them to pick up their phone, to do their MFA token, to give them the two tokens back. It's, it was time consuming. Um, they also wanted to be able to bulk create users and know that they still get an I, uh, MFA user, uh, sorry, MFA token assigned to them. So this feature will actually look for anytime you create an IAM user, once you've done that, it's going to automatically create an NMFA token, a virtual MFA token, um, calculate the numbers needed, the two six-digit numbers, assign that token to the user, take that string. So when you create a virtual token, you get something, uh, um, a 32-bit string seed, a seed that is going to store in a Dynamo table, encrypted format, and that's the only token that you need to give the user. So when they feel ready uh, to start using it, you can just give them that uh, string. Uh, same process as when you give them out the, uh, the access keys or the username and password. Give them that token string, and they just copy-paste that straight into their uh, Google Authenticator or whatever two-factor authentication system they use. And it's ready to go, synced up, and they have a two-factor authentication without having to talk to the admin at all. Um, and you can implement that using whatever distribution tools that you have. I don't know if, if you use, um, well, whatever chat, chat system or uh, paper system that you have to give them the access tokens. Just add the MFA token as a separate part, of course, because you don't want to send everything into the same package. Uh, so if we demo this, if you switch over. So this demo is not the most exciting one, not, it's even over in the movie theater. So we're just going to say that I'm going to create an MFA test user. So this is just going to go in and look for, okay, we don't have a user. Um, so it's going to create the user, and then it's just going to sit there and pull. So this is just a demo script. Everything happens on the back end. So it doesn't matter if you run one user or a thousand users that you create. It's just going to batch up in the background and kick off a bunch of Lambda functions. And this is where we have the whole um, scalability from Lambda and the benefit of using that. So in this case, we see that, okay, we found a user in the back end, uh, and we found that that user also had an MFA token now. <clears throat> and we see that we got an MFA token, we got a virtual MFA created, it got assigned to the user, and we can see that it had a serial number, a username, a 32-bit string seed number, and that seed number is stored now in the backend database using KMS encryption because we don't want to store unencrypted. And once we need to send that out to the user, we can either have a script, we can have a separate Lambda function and have that as the only one that has access to that uh, KMS key. So we know that no one can get that information without having access to the KMS key. And as I said, it doesn't look much reward <laughs> in, a, in a console, but what happened was that uh, actually, we'll show you that. Just switch over again. So what happened was that we have our priority action. Um, 
in this case, it's look for the user. So when the user is created, we're simply going to look for create an MFA token. So in this case, we have our priority action is a number of steps. It's not just one step, but we have them in the order we need to do them. So we need to first create the MFA token because without that token, we can't that get that seed string that we need to calculate the numbers for the actual MFA token. So <clears throat> first off, we create a virtual MFA. Uh, we name it the same as the username so we can easily find them using um, any kind of automation. We just name it username dash uh, hyphen MFA. Um, and then we verify that it actually got created. If not, we just retry and make sure we have a retry structure. Uh, we have a failsafe, so in case this, in case it cannot assign an MFA token to the user, it's actually going to delete that user and send a report back, because we don't want to send out the user by mistake that didn't get an MFA token assigned. Um, and then we're going to do the uh, enable the MFA. And if you run these kind of scripts and if you create them yourself, especially when working with MFA tokens, so you can generate that seed number with a seed that is less than six characters, but it has to be six characters. So in this case. We simply generate a token until we get a token that has six characters. And this is a um, uh, H-based token, so it's uh, not a time based token, it's an HMAC-based token, so HOTP. Um, and we're going to try that, and we also need to create two tokens because we need to add both of them. So we create the first one, we wait a little bit because there's a time between them. We have a 30-second th uh, timeout when we calculate the actual uh, HMAC token and time-based token. And it's a time-based token that we want to have in the end. Um, so we create the first one, we create the second one, we compare them and make sure that A, they're not the same because then the time wasn't enough, and also that both of them are six characters. And the six characters is really important, otherwise it will fail. Uh, once we have that, uh, oh actually, so the way we calculate it is by using an HMAC uh, function. So we use HMAC base64 decode um, and then offset function. So this is just available in the script. You can go in and take a look at it if you want to and, and see if you want to change something. Uh, but this is just a way to generate the actual HMAC token. Um, and once we have it, we're going to take both of those two tokens uh, together with the serial number for the MFA token and assign it to the user and verify that, yes, we could assign it. If it fails, we're just going to fail that user and delete it again. Again, we want to make sure that it's foolproof. Um, and finally, once we create the user, once we create MFA token, store the information back here uh, so we can extract it later. Really, really important, I've said it many times, encrypt the information. Uh, it's really easy to call KMS directly from Lambda. Uh, so just add a string that uh, encrypts the ciphertext, and this is the 32-bit seed string that you're going to give to the user so they can add to the token. Because that seed string is their MFA token. That is the equivalent of sending them the hardware token. So you need to protect it. And don't send it in the same package with the username and password. <clears throat> if we can switch again. So again, this script is not, uh, this is also available uh, to download. It's not that complicated from a script perspective. Um, the piece that I want to make sure here is that make sure you see that it's approved. Make sure that you see that it went through and the user got the token assigned to them. Um, because otherwise, you, will not, you should not have that user available. Um, it has a preview feature that um, I've introduced as well, which is create password. And this is if you don't want to deal with password as well, you can just have the script set a um, randomized password 
and store that in an encrypted seed as well in the, uh, the uh, Dynamo table using KMS. And that's also to reduce the amount of information that the administrators have, because they should not have the username and password for uh, that user as well. This is also why we want to have this system created versus a human that is sitting there doing things. Um, we want to re remove the human part from the security validation. And then simply create the log data. And in this case, we're going to add more than just a string. We want to add, for example, where it was run, who actually created this, because we also want to know who created that user. Was it someone that is uh, approved to do it or not? We switch over again. So the last script we're going to show is the tainted server. Uh, and what we mean with that is that, let's say we have an immutable infrastructure. No one is supposed to log on to the instances at all. Um, in some cases, people remove the, the ability completely by removing SSH access. Um, but that's not practical in some cases, because you might have a need to go in um, as a sort of a super administrative mode. Um, even though it's immutable, you might have to go in and extract some information, or you have processes that need to go in and do something. Um, but what we want to do is prevent users from logging on. So in this case, we actually have uh, infrastructure that is deployed with a CloudFormation template in an auto-scaling group and a script running on that server. So anytime someone logs on locally on that script, uh, on that server, um, the server will be automatically ripped out of this, the auto-scaling group and ripped out of the uh, ELB and ALB, um, assigned a isolation security group that's going to isolate it on the network because we still want to maintain the server in case we need to do forensics why someone logged on to that server. Uh, but it's going to rip it out of the network and just isolate it on the network for you as a security team to go in and do whatever it is that you need to do. And it's simply going to auto-heal because we're using uh, auto-scaling groups. The environment will just auto-heal itself. Uh, so in this case, we're using CloudWatch logs, config rules, um, and we can use CloudWatch logs or uh, CloudWatch events or config rules in this case. Uh, it's more do you want to run it on a daily basis. So for example, if it's, it's not the end of the world if someone logs onto them, but we don't want to have them in production because something happened. You can run this on a time basis, run it once a day, and just clean up all the servers that have been um, touched by human. Or you can run it using CloudWatch events and run it instantly when someone logs onto it. And then use Lambda. Uh, you can also tie this into VPC flow logs and get the information there. So if you start seeing weird behavior in VPC flow logs, you can use exactly the same script. Uh, just change where it's triggering from. So instead of triggering from um, the tagging event, it triggers from, uh, for example, a VPC flow log analyzer. In this case, uh, because it's the easiest way to show it, we're actually using tagging um, to determine if someone has logged on to the server or not. Um, you can use any type of event. So the way we do it is that we trigger a uh, AWS CLI command on the server uh, that we then pick up using CloudWatch events. Uh, in this case, we use tagging with a specific string, but you can do any type of event there. So if we switch over. This is the most scary demo if it works or not. So we can see that we have a instance up and running with an IP address. Uh, it has a security group called Instance Security Group, nothing strange. Um, it's part of a CloudFormation stack called the Tainted Server and has a uh, auto-scaling group name. 
we then go in, and you can see that those are the only tags that are available on that server. So we now log on to that server. And we wait for our out update. And we see now that server has another tag. So suddenly got a tag called tainted. That means that someone actually logged on to that server. They didn't do anything, but they logged on. That's enough for us to be uh, suspicious. So let's, oops. So we're just gonna trigger something so we can see that the server is actually alive and kicking. Um, and this is where my, my demo environment failed a little bit earlier, so we'll see if it actually works this time. So if we switch over to the other screen, while that is going in the background, because what is gonna happen is that it's a number of different steps. So we're gonna go and check out the code first. <clears throat> when you, if you test this script, there's one really, really important thing that you <laughs> decide first. Do you want to isolate non-autoscaling group instances? So this is adapted to handle autoscaling because autoscaling has a self-heal. Um, you might not want to do this on non-autoscaling group servers. You might just wanna send an alert instead because if you do that on something that is not, it will not repair itself. So make sure you do an active choice there. This is a good way to get phone calls otherwise. Um, so what we do is simply that we look for all the servers that have that tagging, um, which is called the tainted server. So we look for that tag, extract all the information on it. Uh, this is a lot of info on one page. But uh, one key item here is since we're triggering on tagging, normally you can trigger on anything, like I said, we trigger on tagging. Tagging happens a lot. Even when autoscaling spins up a server, it will tag the instance with the autoscaling information. So we don't want to trigger, we want to make sure that we don't do anything on the autoscaling instances, because otherwise we're just gonna end up in a loop where as soon as autoscaling kicks up a server, we're gonna isolate it, and we're gonna make autoscaling really mad. So make sure that you extract the information and don't do anything on server that are not affected by it. You can use another command as well, like I said. Doesn't have to be tagging, the benefit of CloudWatch events is that it doesn't even have to succeed. You can run any command and just say that, hey, if I see this event and it failed, then I wanna run my script. So you can run something that no one would ever run or no one would ever touch. Second item here is that uh, this script also has an AutoSense feature. So if you're running this manually or through a script, uh, instead of running it as part of a CloudWatch events, so you can run it both as CloudWatch events or you can run it as um, config rules, it needs to adapt because should it run on a single instance or should it run on multiple instances? Um, and then what we're gonna do is that we're just gonna detach it from the autoscaling group and rip it out there. Uh, key item here is should you de um, decrease the uh, decide capacity on the autoscaling groups? No, we don't want otherwise we're gonna drain that autoscaling group. We wanna make sure that it just self heals. Um, second thing, we wanna identify the security group that we're gonna use, because our isolation group is a security group, it's bound by the VPC. So if you have multiple VPCs, we gotta make sure that we extract the right one. So first check, what, what VPC is this server running in? And use that specific VPC. One really important thing here as well. Keyword here is that we're isolating it. When you default create a security group, it allows egress traffic. So when uh, our script has found the right security group to use, 
it's going to validate and see that there's no egress rule on it. Uh, if it is, it's going to remove that egress rule. Uh, that is also a default um, check on the uh, CS Foundation framework that you don't have the default security groups in there. But we, we don't want any egress traffic. We don't want ingress or egress. Um, finally, we're going to take that security group and we're going to assign it uh, directly to the server and that security group will lock all kind of access on that server. And if we switch back, uh, we can now see that there are two servers there. Uh, there is one, I don't know if we can see that, we can do, there we go. Um, we can see that we have um, a new server. We can see that the security group on the top server, oh, sorry, on the bottom server, is the instant security group that we created with the server when we spun it up in the other scaling group. And we can see that the top server now has a security group called isolation security group. So what happened was that the script found the server, ripped, out the, the, ripped it out from the other scaling group, assigned the new isolation server on it, an isolation security group on it, and out of scaling just simply self-healed and put in a new uh, security group. And we can also see that my SSH connection to that server that I was running a ping on got killed because I no longer have either egress or ingress access to that server. So the server can no longer send data to me. So if you had a malicious attempt there, that user have no access anymore, but the server is available, and this is the key, the server is still available for forensics. Oops, if we switch back. Uh, before we end, I wanna give you a couple of uh, heads up on some other projects out there. So these are a couple of code examples that we released just because we wanna get you something in your hands that you can use as is or modify uh, for your needs. Uh, here's a couple of other, uh, there are many more projects out there, but I wanna, do wanna highlight that uh, these are good to start with when you wanna go into the security automation world. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that you can do out here. Um, so for example, we have Threat Responsible Cloud, uh, Cloud Custodian, uh, Security Monkey and Fido are uh, Netflix projects. Um, Cloudsploit is, uh, um, uh, Cloudsploit is also available. Uh, Cloud Custodian is by Capital One. Uh, that released their internal framework as well. So there's a lot of people that have uh, built different kind of frameworks. So if you don't want to build your own, or if you don't want to start on a sort of an individual level, go out there and get the scripts available for you today. Um, as I said, reminder, you can download them today to test it. Uh, most of them are available today. Some of them will, avail will be available during the week. Uh, the CIS Foundation Framework is available today. Um, couple of other sessions, most of them have actually happened already, uh, but once conference is out, go out on YouTube, uh, definitely check out these sessions on security automation. Um, These are really cool sessions by uh, some awesome people, so go in and check them out on YouTube. Um, otherwise, I wanna thank you for coming. Uh, it's awesome to see so many people are interested in secure automation. Um, and absolutely, remember to come fill out your surveys. Uh, we want your feedback. Otherwise, uh, I'm going to be available after for answering question. Probably going to get kicked out, so I'm going to stand right outside the theater. Happy to answer any question. I don't have any meetings uh, if you want to go. Uh, the final night party is tonight, I think. Um, otherwise, thank you so much.